Podcast number 11, where we're discussing the gambling industry from Las Vegas and all around the world. I'm going to introduce my panel, and then we'll get into it. Uh, let's see. Going around the table, we have Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas. Hey, Jeff. Hello there, guys. Glad to be back again. Excellent. Uh, Dave Schwartz from uh, UNLV. Hey, Dave. Hey. hey, things are going pretty good here. I'm back at work pretty much full-time, so uh, I'm in the office a lot now. Awesome. Um, Chuck from VegasTripping.com. Hey, Chuck. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Hey, you're quiet. Can you hit star four? Star four. Yeah, it'll make you a little bit louder so we can hear you better. Hello? That's a little bit better. All right, well, well, we'll work with it and see how we do. And we've got David McKee from the Las Vegas Advisor. Hey, David. Hi, I've been uh, listening to uh, Meryl Streep's solos from the uh, Mamma Mia soundtrack, so I am on cloud nine. Uh, nice. Are you a big ABBA fan? You? Oh, absolutely. I I am very psyched. I you know I have to I have to admit showing my age again. You know, I, before I saw the musical, I really wasn't all that familiar. I mean, obviously I would I had heard of them, but I wasn't all that familiar with their music. But that was uh, such a fun show. Um, and it, you know, it really encouraged me to go back and listen to some of that stuff, and it's really some catchy tunes. Well, and when we were when we were in uh, Minnesota on vacation, we dropped uh, I, I blush to admit it a hundred bucks a piece to see this Finnish uh, acapella vocal group, uh, Rioton, do an, an all ABBA program with uh, with the Minnesota Orchestra. So, so uh, yeah, it's uh, I've. We're in. So, I, li, I live in a somewhat ABBA crazed household. <laughs> well, then you uh, you should be excited. Hopefully, it's a good flick. Um, I am Hunter Hillegas from RateVegas.com. Uh, thanks all for listening. Uh, we've got a couple of in- a few interesting topics today, so I think we should just jump in. Um, the first one I want to talk about is Encore. Encore at Win Las Vegas is a new property, and well, an expansion to Win Las Vegas or a uh, adjunct property. Uh, and this past week, Wynn Resorts started taking reservations. Um, they aren't allowing reservations at this point before early February, uh, though they still are saying that they're going to be opening in December. I had posted a story on my website indicating that discrepancy, along with uh, and very unconfirmed, I should underscore that rumor, that they had had some sort of a dispute with a furniture, fixtures, and equipment supplier that had put a question mark on that opening. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that last part is true. That was, like I said, a rumor from around. Um, but Jeff, I believe you actually talked to Steve Wynn about this. Is that right? Yes, it is, um, Hunter. And 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 I, you know, I I had seen the, your post on uh, um, Two Way Hard Three, and and thought, well, that that seems like something I could probably confirm or find out about. So I called over there and. Um, his assistant put me right on with Steve Wynn and, and Wynn said, you know, as far as I know, we're, we're opening in December and he got, uh, he got, um, his, uh, nephew, Andrew Pascal, who runs Wynn Las Vegas and will probably be running Encore on the phone. He's, uh, and, you know, Pascal said, no, there's, you know, there's no, um, right now there's no problem that'll prevent it from opening in, in December. They got, uh, the uh the guy who owns uh Perini and also um 
has his own private construction company um, that's building Encore, got him on the phone. And, and so we had a conference call, and, you know, right now um, there's no, there is no obstacle. But that doesn't mean that your source was incorrect. I guess the, the, the jump maybe that the source made that it wouldn't open in December is wrong. But there are always little snafus that come up between those suppliers. The, the, the contractor, um, you know, make, it's not responsible for everything. There are some things that, you know, that Wynn Resorts has to provide. And among those would be furniture, fixtures, and equipment. Um, there's also the county element. The county has to come in and approve the safety of the project. And so if, you know, if there's an important element of, you know, that goes in every room or that would go into, you know, building a public a public part of the property that isn't going to arrive on time or that wouldn't be done correctly and that wind resorts wouldn't accept it, that could cause a delay. But as as far as um, the, the, the contractor, as far as Wynn and as far as Pascal are concerned, they expect, at least they told me, um, on record that they expect to be opening in December. So, you know, I mean, is it possible that it wouldn't open then? You know, it, it's always possible, and I think that Wynn would say that too. Something could come up, sure. but I think that right now they do expect to open in December. They have a, there's, you know, there's a strategic reason why they want to open in December, you know, so they've geared toward that all along. Um, and and that's because it's a slower period between Thanksgiving and Christmas. They can sort of get their staff working when things are a little less frantic than they will be just a month later when you have the, you know, you have a le- less than a month when you have the uh, U.S. New Year's followed by Super Bowl and Chinese New Year's, you know, some of the biggest uh, times for uh, the upscale casinos here in on the Strip. Sure. I, the only thing that I thought was a little bit interesting, um, well, uh, I mean, I find the entire story interesting, but the, the fact that that they are actually holding these reservations, and I definitely understand holding group reservations because, you know, someone planned a conference. That's a pretty significant problem if it has to be moved. But in the past, at least to my knowledge, when Win Las Vegas was opened and going back to Mirage Resorts, they didn't do this with the reservations. They they were taking reservations from day one on, even knowing that any time they open a property, there can be a problem. And some people might even argue that the opening of Win Las Vegas should have been delayed a week or two because of the glitches out of the first day, first couple of days. But you know, I just thought that that particular piece of information was interesting. So either they know something that they are hoping doesn't isn't a problem, or they're being extra careful this time. And I'm just wondering why the change in thinking. I think that. Um well, there's a combination, and, and you mentioned the win opening, and Win said that as it opened, he said, "I wish I had another month." Um, and what happens is, once they actually set a date certain, and they have yet to do that, you know, they're saying, you know, mid-December and being, you know, sort of squishy about the exact date. Um, once they set the date, they feel like they've made a commitment. Uh, now they're, you know, and um, as far as why they allowed reservations um, before, I think that, you know, they probably set a date and then allowed reservations. Here, they're absolutely, you know, they they are, I'm sure once they set the date, and that probably won't be too long, you know, whether it'll be December 15th or whatever the date is, 
once they set that date, I'd anticipate then they'll open it up. And when, when I asked him about, you know, whether they're going to, you know, sacrifice occupancy, he said, well, look, almost all our reservations come in within 90 days anyway. So he doesn't think that they're sacrificing um, any, any occupancy. And I think that they're pretty confident that the expectations for this property are going to be a lot higher than the, uh, than the property just south of Wynn, Las Vegas, um, <laughs> where they, they think that they're going to be able to, you know, they're going to have a lot of national publicity. Um, they're pretty good at sort of generating that kind of um, national and international interest. And so I just don't think they're worried about it. But, but you know, is it possible that there is something that they're not sharing? Um, you know, that is possible. I, you know, based on my experience with them, um, I have yet, you know, they have not, um, you know, yanked my chain before. So I feel pretty good about, you know, the fact that they were being, uh, you know, upfront with me. So, right. you know, we'll I, see. I, I, I hope that, you know, I hope they're right and I hope they get it open in December. Oh, me too. I mean, for the record, I I hope they get it open December because I want to come and check it out. I'm I'm looking forward to the property quite a bit. I just know, you know. I think uh, I think back to right before the Danny Gans announcement when Steve Wynn was talking to Steve Fries and explicitly said that he was crazy for suggesting Danny Gans was going to come to Encore. And then a week later, <laughs> we've got an announcement. So, you know, obviously sometimes there are reasons that they need to hold information back, and I understand that. Just yep. thought it was an interesting story. Jeff, do you, I mean, in light of what we saw this week about discounting on the Strip, uh, I mean, is is Wynn going to be able to maintain his his price point for Encore? I mean, he does have a lot of things going for him in terms of you know brand name recognition, uh, anticipation of the product of the property, et cetera. I don't know that he'll be able to maintain the price point. I think he'll be able to get command the best rate on the strip, but it may not be what he was hoping it would be a year ago because you may see all of the price points pounded down a few pegs. So let's say, you know, they had anticipated win would be the second highest, Encore would be the highest, let's say with, you know, Bellagio, Venetian, you know, Palazzo below those. Well, that's probably going to be, you know, I don't think that's going to change. What will change is maybe, you know, when weekend rates were climbing above four or 500 bucks on many of our best weekends, you know, those rates may end up being, you know, $100 less than that for for a while until this national economy um, improves. Um, and, you know, there's just so many fundamentals that are uh, very tough for Las Vegas right now. And, you know, I, you know it, it's not like they're picking a great time to open, but um, then again, you know, maybe things can improve over the next six months. I don't talk to many folks who expect it to. So will the price point be what they were hoping for? I, I don't think so, but I do think that they're going to maintain the spot on the pecking order that they wanted, which is at the top. I think, and I, this is probably an entire topic that I, that we will maybe do another day, but we'll hit one of his comments, Steve Wynn's comments about the Palazzo's opening, and basically, I, I don't know his exact quote, but to paraphrase, something along the lines of, you know, I think he said something like it was the smallest splash he's ever seen for an opening, uh, sort of like a, a, no, a non-story almost. Um, 
I, at some point, maybe we'd talk about why that was, because like, that's probably a pretty interesting story. But you know, it's, it was just funny for him to get another volley off in his in his Adelson uh, Adelson war. I hadn't seen that quote, but uh, I think he's I'm right. Not, where did I see that? Was that in your article, Jeff, or was that some? It was in, it was it was in my story um, in uh, in business Las Vegas uh, um, this week. Uh, actually, that came out last Friday. And uh, I put it in in business instead of the sun to try and uh, keep it from as many folks as possible. So that's why you didn't see it, David. <laughs> All right. Well, Encore is definitely an interesting story that we're going to keep that we're going to keep on top of. Um, before we move off it, I will just uh, for a, a listener note, um, Chuck it, Chuck has posted a bunch of recent Encore construction photos at VegasTripping.com. So if you're interested in seeing the current progress of Encore. Um, as the low rise takes shape, you can go over to Vegas Tripping and see those pictures. Um, but for our next story, we're going to head south down Las Vegas Boulevard a bit to the Cosmopolitan. Um, they were in the news again uh, this week. Um, the Cosmopolitan, as we all know, is a somewhat troubled project at this point. Um, but it seems like things just got a little bit worse. Uh, Hearst Magazine Corporation owns the Cosmopolitan magazine and has decided to sue the project uh, citing uh, trademark infringement, I guess. Um, Dave Schwartz, uh, what do you think about this? Does does this uh, lawsuit have any legs? I mean, is there precedent for this in the past? How, how do we think this is going to play out? I don't think there's that much precedent because I think Cosmopolitan is such a generic name. You know, I don't think there's anything that really ties it to the magazine itself. So I think it's kind of tough. You know, imagine if Time Magazine went around suing the New York Times and the LA Times or vice versa. You know, I you know I don't know. Um, I I think maybe they're just trying to squeeze a little bit more money out of uh, Bruce Eichner there. <laughs> As if there were any money to yeah. squeeze. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at this point, the the project is still on sort of questionable financial footing. I mean, Deutsche Bank took it over. Uh, is that correct? Are they still completing? Is construction ongoing at this point? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they're still telling, paying uh, Perini, who's the contractor. So construction's going on, but I think they're looking for a buyer. Yeah. Well, and the price tag has now hit 4.6 billion. So it is, isn't that insane? I mean, uh, for I mean, I understand there's significant engineering challenges in that building due to the having to dig so deep in a small plot of land, but that just seems absolutely crazy to me. Yeah, they're not getting they're not getting much bang for their buck. I mean, the return on investment figure for that place once it finally opens has got to be like t- absolutely terrible. Well, the idea is that they're, I mean, the per unit cost, as it's going to be condo hotel, is going to be a little higher than in a standard hotel room, a lot higher. And they do have, I think it's, is it, you know, at least three or four, maybe even five floors of public area, which is, you know, insanity also. Um, but if that's if that's right, and I and I was not aware of that, David, that the cost is um, you know up above four billion dollars. But that is ridiculous when you think that that's really just about the cost of Win Las Vegas and Encore. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, somehow you got to think that Win Las Vegas and Encore together will produce more cash flow than the resulting cosmopolitan. Sure. It's so. like I could build a Bellagio, a spa tower, and a Luxor, and I'd still have some money for dinner. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem like money well spent, and uh, you know the poor the poor poor Deutsche Bank folks are uh, 
must be thinking of it as somewhat of a rat hole. So, um, yeah, it's not it's not looking positive. Well, not only that, they've gotten into uh, they've gotten into the the business of playing um, interior designer as well, because apparently they're going around and changing the color schemes and such, as if they did not have more important things to worry about. Uh, Chuck, did you have a comment on the Cosmo thing? Yeah, I uh, when I had first read uh, that story, I just happened to have uh, like four or five of my wife's friends in the house, and they were chit chatting in the other room. So I kind of figured, you know, uh, that, you know, they're women. They probably read Cosmopolitan. I think most of them go to Vegas. So I walked out there and I took an informal poll. And, I, you know, I said, you know, they're building a new hotel in Vegas and they're going to call it the Cosmopolitan. Uh, what, what are you guys' first thoughts? And pretty much straight across the board, they all started talking about uh, cocktails and uh, sex in the city and uh parties and things like that, not one of them mentioned the Cosmopolitan magazine at all. So uh, if if you can consider these five women as, uh, you know, a part of the jury, we can say case dismissed <laughs> on that. Uh, you know, call Wapner, sign the papers, and all that thing. You know, it's kind of like if, if Mitsubishi decided to sue MGM Mirage for to get them to change the name of you know, uh, of the Mirage because they have a car called Mitsubishi Mirage. It makes no sense. Well, we might have had a precedent if the Treasure Island, Minnesota versus Treasure Island, Las Vegas suit had gone the full nine innings, but uh, it didn't, so we'll never know how that would have come out. Yeah. Well, the Cosmos is obviously a troubled project, and, you know, for the sake of uh, a city center, hopefully some of these things get cleared up because – City Center is a pretty interesting project, and it would be a shame to have a blight on its corner. So, you know, I'm sure somebody will open it one of these days, but uh, it doesn't seem like it's getting any easier. No, no matter what, even if the Cosmopolitan gets built, there's going to be a blight there. It's called the Jockey Club. (laughs) (laughs) And that will be a blight. Luckily, all those projects are going to tower above it, so it's going to be a pretty well-hidden blight. The Jockey Club will probably still be there when everything else is just back to sand. <laughs> probably. The Jockey Club and that apartment building behind the Mirage. <laughs> <laughs> the Villa Flores. <laughs> All right. Um, next up is a story, another story I wrote about on my blog that I thought was interesting, um, and that's uh, MG Mirage is using social or using some social networking tools, um, including sites like Twitter and Facebook to promote their properties and their amenities. So, um, well, maybe I'll let Chuck explain this. Can, Chuck, can you explain what Twitter is and, and why a company would use it to for marketing purposes? Yeah, Twitter is a, uh, a it's kind of hard to describe. It's like a micro-blogging software that works on uh, mobile networks. You can use it on your phone. You can use it on the Internet. You can get and send messages from your contacts, your friends, uh, anywhere you are. So it's like you're always connected to this miniature blog of you and your friends. So uh, what what they've done uh, in TM Mirage is it looks like they've they've hooked up three separate Twitter accounts. One is like an overarching account, uh, Vegas Concierge, uh, it doesn't say – well, it does say in the fine print that it is brought to you by MGM Mirage, wherein uh, you can send them a message 
and say, hey, you know, uh, what time is the uh, Louie Anderson show? And they'll send you a text message back. Now, that's probably one of the more helpful things that it does. It also uh, just sends, like, a bunch of kind of messages. Like, uh, let's see, the the one that they just sent is uh, just announced for locals. Get 20% off at Wet Spa and Salon at Treasure Island. Uh, Sunday through Thursday, call TI for more. Uh, they also send recommendations for, hey, you know, uh, go eat uh, French toast at Bellagio whatnot, things like that. So they also have one for Luxor, which appears to be uh, run by a very chatty employee. Uh, th- th- this person talks about basically things that they do in their uh, their daily job. Like they last couple days at uh, MGM Mirage uh, Management Diversity Training and got their uh, – uh, got to do the electric slide while they were in there, and uh, so they're uh, they're putting happy, a more friendly face. Yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's much more kind of kind of positive and uh, you know sort of silly and and uh, uh, well, I don't know how exactly how to describe it. It, it seems almost kind of like more chatty and, and useless to me. But they do answer questions if you ask. Uh, MGM Grand, they have another one, another Twitter account for MGM Grand, who has sent three total updates. So this person is quite a bit less uh, verbose than the Luxor persons. And their uh, latest text from seven days ago was, uh, summer dining menu start at $30. Right. So a week well, ago, if you wanted to know. Let me tell you a little bit about what I, I – I saw this uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, and I thought it was interesting because – well, I thought it was interesting for a few reasons, and then I'll, I learned a little bit more about specifically what they're doing. Um, I thought it was interesting because this is a fairly cutting-edge use of social technology for these marketing purposes, and in the past, I haven't really considered these casino companies as being very cutting-edge when it came to using new technologies. Um, any any Vegas-related blogger or website owner will probably tell you that they still have a lot of difficulty getting good information out of these companies. They traditionally haven't been that great at providing Internet-based writers and site owners with information or communicating. And in my opinion, that's ignoring um, a very you know good outlet for them. So when I saw this, I was surprised. And I called him Jim Mirage PR, and I talked to my good buddy over there. And she confirmed that absolutely this is something they're doing. They're going to be doing a lot more of this kind of stuff, um, that, they're, that they're very eager to continue. And I actually also spoke with uh, – I guess I probably shouldn't say her name because I don't think she has it out there. But the woman that does the Luxor LV updates, I talked to her. Uh, and they, she's in their interactive media department there, and you know she got the, the boss to sign off on it. And, and it's very interesting. Uh, <laughs> I thought it would be kind of funny – to ask the Vegas, Vegas concierge um, some non-MGM Mirage questions to see what, what, what kind of info I would get back. Um, and, you know, obviously I think if you ask them where's the best place for dinner tonight, they're going to steer you towards an MGM Mirage outlet. But, um, you know, I asked some questions about the forum shops, and, sh- and she was, or the concierge was happy to oblige with legitimate answers. So, you know, they will, they will give you info other than just uh, the straight-up marketing speak. But just in general, I think this is very interesting as we watch these companies embrace these technologies and more to connect with their customers. Um, it's, I just think it's fascinating, and, and especially considering that they've never really been, in my opinion – 
that forward thinking. They've been more reactive than proactive when it comes to using this technology. So I thought it was a very interesting story. I think, I, and this is uh, Jeff Simpson again, Hunter. I think it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I've, I haven't been in the market that long, um, nine years, so I haven't been able to see the full arc of the Internet era. But um, when I came to the market, it was sort of difficult to actually book hotel rooms on company websites. Sometimes, you know, they were more informational, linking you to 800 numbers. Um, and then pretty quickly, I'd say probably 99, um, 2000, they had sort of had rudimentary, um, cap- you know, offered sort of the rudimentary capability of, of booking online. Now, you know, they're, you know, obviously they've evolved in many generations since then. And now, you know, their websites are pretty darn, um, you know, uh, modern and pretty and, and uh, offer a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, capability. And I think that, you know, the, the, they may not be, this may not be an industry that is the most up-to-date, the most, you know, hip and current when it comes to technology, but they're also not, you know, resistant to change. And I think that, you know, if it's a way to boost revenue, if it's a way to get people interested in their property, they're going to adopt it. Um, I think that, you know, they probably lag behind, you know, the the beverage industries and, you know, some other ones, but they're not bad. And and, and I've been I've been relatively um impressed with um their willingness to do it. There are still some companies that are very, very slow and others um, you know, so I think Harris is one that's been pretty good on the web, um, and others that have been very, very slow. Um, I think uh, Boyd um, is, you know, one of the slowest when it comes to Internet um, accessibility. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, presumably, this is something that a year or two from now, all these companies or most of them will be doing it, and uh, it makes sense. It's just oh. sort of the evolution of society. I, I agree. I mean, I think this is an absolute absolute perfect match for them trying to sell these products, trying to differentiate themselves in the market. I think it's a perfect match. I was just honestly a little uh, surprised that they were – I mean, there aren't that many companies doing this stuff, especially with, with Twitter, which is becoming uh, – which is definitely an emerging platform, but becoming more and more popular and um, important. And so, you know, I was I was impressed. And uh, I, I agree with you. I think we'll definitely see a lot more of this. And that was pretty much what MG Mirage had said: is you know expect this to continue. They're they're definitely looking at all sorts of ways that they can use these technologies to to get their their message out there. All right. Um, let's see. We've got another story here. And uh, David, you gave you um, you put this in front of me. And so mm-hmm. I'll let you uh, maybe outline it. The the, uh, the company we're talking about here is – I think we're still calling them Harris, aren't we? Um, are they yeah. actually changed? No, okay. they have not. So the, we, they, of course, uh, took on a lot of debt as part of their privatization. Um, and in today's rocky markets, it, they are uh, – well, they're refinancing uh, in a little bit of a shady way. At least that's what it seems like. Uh, well, I wouldn't why wouldn't call it – well, shady is maybe the wrong word. Uh, it's definitely legal and above board, but it just sounds maybe a little bit desperate. Um, <laughs> why don't you uh, fill, fill the listeners in on what I'm talking about? Okay. I'll try not to make this too abstruse. They um, 
are coming up, they're, they're looking at the maturity dates on some of their debt and at the possibility of instead of paying off these bonds with cash, paying them with by issuing still more debt. And part of the, the rationale for this is that uh, if they don't do this, then all of their their cash is going to be gobbled up by debt servicing, and they're not going to be able to do any sort of of development. And um, I mean, they also have a, a revolving credit facility, which gives them almost two billion dollars to spend on on uh, projects. But I mean, they're so. Um, as one analyst said, quote, they pushed it to the limit in terms of ledger, leveraging up, and I feel it's probably not getting any better. Also, it now, for every $100 million they have in debt, it's costing them $21 million to insure it. So um, they've got, you know, they've got an enormous debt load, and they, uh, in their last quarterly report, the debt servicing more than wiped out the income, and then you pile the early retirement of debt in order to you know get those interest payments down on top of that. And um, I mean, it's, it's a company that's that's uh, pretty strapped right now. And um, then they have uh, apparently the, the when things get really interesting, or as one analyst says, they, they're pretty liquid through 2010, and that's when people start to get less comfortable with the name close quote, because uh, they hit what's described as a pretty high wall of maturities uh, in 2010 and, and rolling forward. So uh, by issuing more debt, that's a, a way of staying liquid um, when all these notes are coming due. So, I mean, it's definitely going to be, uh, um, I think this is, this is where Gary Loveman and, and crew really, uh, are going to earn their money. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess if you're going to be a, a gaming company in this position, he's probably, he's probably the most, uh, you know, numbers slash economics focused guy that you may want in charge, but it just, it just seems, it seems like the situation is somewhat tenuous. I, it, I don't know. It just seems like when you're issuing more debt to pay your debt service, probably not the position that you want to be in. Uh, I, I'm wondering if we can get a point of comparison. I mean, the station casinos privatization obviously wasn't as big of a deal, but you know, what kind of financial condition are they in at this point? I wonder. It's harder to tell because they aren't filing uh, with the SEC, to my knowledge, unlike Harrah's. Right. Uh, the uh, um, you know the it does it's obviously um, constipated their development pipeline quite a bit. Uh, it was at an event at Green Valley Ranch, and one of their subs on uh, one of their subcontractors said that that uh, projected a 2012 opening date for for Viva. Uh, and if indeed that's that's the next project on their uh, plate, then between between the opening of Aliante and the opening of Viva, we're going to have four years without a new station property. Right, and that's definitely been you know they've been on such a rapid clip of opening stuff in the last you know decade or so. Now, what makes this stuff about Harrow's even more interesting is, I mean, since I put that up on the blog, is that you know there are these these. Uh, mysterious 
signs of something going on on their back lot there between Audrey and Koval. They're they're tearing stuff down, you know, bulldozing. They've got a bunch of construction trailers sitting where Bourbon Street used to be. I mean, there something's you know something's in in the wind there, but it's. Harris is so they've been so cryptic about that for such a long time. I don't know if this is if they're starting to lay the groundwork for, you know, for their their old epicenter plan or if they've got something else in mind, but uh they they do seem I didn't think that they would uh start to uh, uh, developing that site quite so soon after the buyout, but it uh, it looks like I was wrong. Well, now maybe someone can can fill me in on this. I I watch the Clark County uh, building permitting agenda like a hawk because I find a lot of interesting little tidbits in there. How how soon would I mean? Do they have to go to the the to get their building permits and their zoning stuff ahead of time? Can they start on site work before? I mean, would there be a paper trail supporting whatever that they're working on? But does anybody know? There would be a paper trail, and you know, they're almost it's almost a certainty that they're not going to do a comprehensive all at once development. I mean, they own so much land, um, and they have so many possible projects. Um, the, and, and the fiscal situation that David outlined, uh, you know, almost precludes the, the chance that they would do an all-at-once redevelopment. So let's say they start with the arena, um, which is certainly, a, I think, a likelihood. Um, you know, they would file those plans, and, you know, they would go through the typical timetable, and they would, you know, start building the arena, um, whether they would say – we're going to do the arena and, you know, sh- and shut down a casino. I mean, you're going to know, in addition to plans being filed with the county, if they're shutting down any of their hotels, um, they have, uh, you know, work rec- or federal requirements that they have to give people 90 days notice unless they want to pay people 90 days out. Um, so they're going to be um, giving people notice that a property will close and typically between closure and implosion or demolition, there's another three to six months. So there will be, you know, there will be some kind of notice. It's not going to just sneak up on us that all of a sudden they have, you know, 40 cranes working on their extended, you know, parcel and everyone's surprised. That's not going to happen. I think they're going to do it, you know, relatively piecemeal. Um, it's it's just, you know, it's a, it's a market that, you know, it's tough to get. It's tough to borrow additional money. Um, they already are paying more for their debt than they would in happier times. And uh, it also makes it tough for them to close those cash flow producing properties in favor of in favor of getting started sooner. So, you know, a lot of things weigh on the side. Now, an arena, I think they they feel, you know, first of all, it's not that big of a cost. And it also will be a net revenue enhancer for the rest of their projects. I think that are properties. I think they think that works hand in glove, um, sort of like the Coliseum did for Caesars, in boosting the value, boosting the room rates of their other properties. And I think that that's probably right. And I just just want to add two things quickly. One, I don't think they can afford to to close any of their casinos right now. So. 
whatever whatever they do, it's probably going to be something that can be done without interfering with the normal course of business in a significant way. And um, uh, um, well, what was was my other? Oh well. It'll come back to me in a minute, but that's. Uh, I mean, I don't think that. Uh, I mean, I don't think we're going to to see any. I I'd be shocked if we saw any casino closures anywhere in the near term. Well, there's uh, this is Chuck again. Uh, there's of course some evidence to this. For uh, in the earlier uh, yesterday, uh, that their vice president of design and construction for uh, this half of the states has resigned and is going to work for the uh, Thunder Valley tribe in Sacramento. Yeah, I'm mean, very surprising that it, the, A, they didn't, uh, they didn't enforce any sort of a non-compete clause, and B, that they would come out and admit that their development uh, slate had, had dwindled to almost nothing, so that they didn't have work for this person to do. Now, Another and another important, and this is Jeff again. But another another thing to remember is it's also a bad time for them to be spinning off or selling properties. Now they have typically been an acquirer of companies, but I think a lot of people have speculated, and Harris has even said that there are properties that they own that probably no longer are the kind of properties that they want to keep operating. Um, and you know, in and outside of Nevada, but um, a lot of people in Las Vegas have focused on the Rio, um, where they have a whole lot of a whole lot of developable land, um, a fairly big property that they paid, I think, was $888 million for a little more than a decade ago, and that property um, doesn't, it, although it's relatively close to Caesar's Palace, it doesn't fit within their um, footprint of contiguous properties. They have such a, a nice group of them um, on the east side of the Strip plus Caesars on the west. So it doesn't really, it, you know, it makes it sort of a long tee with the, uh, with the unfortunate fact of Interstate 15 uh, between them. So, you know, Rio could be sold, but it just isn't the right time to sell it now probably. And they have properties in other markets. Um, the northern Nevada market, they have Harvey's, Harris Lake Tahoe, Harris Reno, um, but I don't think there's any big appetite for for anyone um, to get into those into those markets right now. Um, and you know, there's a lot of other properties outside of Nevada that you know they could theoretically um, sell as well, and that could be money that they would use to help fund um, their redevelopment at Center Strip. But the problem is. The economy, the timing, the credit market is just so bad. It makes it tough for anybody to buy. It makes it tough for them to sell. So I think David's right. I think it's very tough for them to close properties in the near term. Although, although one one thing that I would say is that it, it was sort of telltale to me for Imperial Palace. It took them like a year, maybe a year and a half after buying it before they reluctantly converted it to its total to the company's total rewards program because they had planned on imploding that place and then they were like well you know we're not going to implode it for for the near term let's total rewards well they're pulling the same thing with Bill's gambling hall or I still like to call it the Barbary Coast um, that property 
is also not on their total reporting system. You know, it would cost, uh, you know, some millions of dollars. I'm not sure if it would make it to double-digit millions, but at least millions of dollars to um, retrofit all their machines and bring in the software and to do to add that to total total rewards, and they're not doing it. So if there is a property that seems most ripe right now um, to foreclosure, if there is one, and I, I agree with David that it doesn't seem likely, but if I had to identify one, I'd probably pick that one. Yeah. Well, David, again, I just, I think that there's one. I mean, there's some. There are a couple of other markets, Atlantic City and Tunica, for instance, where they're arguably overexposed. And a deal that would be very mutually beneficial would be if they spun off some of these uh, properties uh, there and at Lake Tahoe. To you know, if Penn National instead of chasing this uh, private buyout that's giving them so much difficulty, if they were you know if 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 they would take some of these things off of Harris' hands, they would get Penn National into a lot of markets where it is not at present, and it would uh, it would uh, provide some quick financial relief for Harris, maybe give them some development capital. Who knows? But but it's probably not a an opportune economic time for anybody, Penn National or anyone else, to, to jump at that. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but it just seems like, you know, I think that probably all of – there at least the hint of an economic turnaround is probably needed before you start seeing those kind of deals going on. Yeah, I mean, every time a casino goes back on the market, I mean, I'm hard pressed to think of somebody who's a who's a logical buyer for, you know, for any you know, fill in the blank. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely a very complicated financial situation, but uh, it is interesting to see them having to resort to what I'm sure was not their first choice in uh, in ways to handle their debt. Um, we have a little bit of extra time, and I uh, am remiss in not including this on the list of topics, um, but I think it is something we should discuss, it, it, even if it's just for a few minutes, and that's this uh, profile in the New Yorker magazine of casino emperor Sheldon Adelson. Um, I'm sure we've all read it. Jeff actually is mentioned in the article. Um, Jeff, do you want to talk a little bit about about it, explain what it is, and your and how you came to be uh, included. Well, I mean, I, I and, and sure. Um, first, I was included because I wrote a column that uh, um, evidently uh, um, affected or evidently irritated the uh, ever so sensitive Mr. Adelson, and so uh, for that, my uh, my humblest apologies. But but um, you know what I wrote was absolutely true. Um, I said that they had a uh, about a regulatory record, and that they had a lawsuit happy history. Um, the irony of them suing me for writing that was uh, was was amusing. Um, um, even though even though my company had to spend a lot of money to defend me and itself, um, but um, but that was really a small part of the story. The main the main focus of this New Yorker profile was was talking about. Uh, Sort of, you know, sort of showing this larger-than-life character who um, is, um, you know, you know, he wants to be, you know, the rich, you know, the richest person in the world. He claims that he's, you know, the richest Jew in the world. He is, uh, you know, very interested in Israeli and American politics. He's an arch conservative, um, and 
you know, talks. You know, I, I read a, a pretty good critique on the article that Steve Fries posted on his blog, which I thought was um, was interesting. Um, you know, I actually felt like um, you know those of us in Las Vegas always are you know are quick to criticize outsiders' perspectives on the city. Um, a lot of things seem you know like no brainers. A lot of things, you know. Um, but but I but I felt like the New Yorker piece was pretty good. I felt like the the one thing that was missing was the spate of lawsuits that um, Las Vegas Sands and Adelson had against the contractors who built the Venetian. Um, to me, that was um, a very you know the the company has evolved from a company on sort of shaky financial footing before they got their Macau license. And when the Venetian opened slowly, I think a lot of folks weren't positive in the uh, long-term potential of that property. Um, there was, a, you know, the economy was, um, it wasn't as weak as it is now, but it was, the economy was sort of weak at the start of the, at the start of the uh, decade. And um, the Venetian opened exceptionally poorly. Um, and folks were wondering how well that property would do. And so at the same time, they were, um, you know, I think a lot of folks felt like they were um, stiffing their contractors, not paying, and the contractors, you know, there were suits and countersuits, and the Venetian ended up at the wrong end of those, uh, you know, when when uh, the courts finally made their decision. The Venetian ended up owing a lot more than it was owed. Um, they And that was at the same time as the Venetian had these regulatory troubles where um, they rigged. Um, a couple contests where the guy, you know, the marketing people were trying to reward a losing gambler with prizes, and they actually, you know, held the person's name up their sleeve. I mean, it sounds it's right. impossible to believe, but you know, they and and so that those kind of things. It was a much different company then. Not, you know, it's a company that you know has the the, the straw in the Macau sucking out money like crazy. Venetian is a very successful property. It is building uh, a big casino in Singapore and another one in eastern Pennsylvania in Bethlehem. Um, and I think it's a much different property, a much different company. They don't need to be as anti, as litigious. Um, not to say that they aren't litigious. Uh, my colleague, John L. Smith, might beg to differ with that. But um, I felt like the article, aside from missing that sort of evolution of Las Vegas Sands, I think it was a company that, when it was in financial trouble, was more aggressive, more litigious. I think now this is a company now they're more philanthropic. They, um, I mean, they, you know, they are making a lot of money, even if their stock price has dropped in half. That's more of a sign of the economy, I think, than any, um, you know reflection of the weakness of, of, of the operation. Um, so I, you know, I felt like she did a pretty good job with the story. Um, I didn't, you know, I had no major qualms with it. And, uh, you know, Steve, Steve t tends to be a little more critical of his fellow media folks than, than I am. Uh, Christina Binkley can uh, testify to that as well. Um, I'm typically a little more, uh, um, supportive of, of my, uh, of my fellow journalists. Um, but, um, I think, you know, I don't take. You know, I don't necessarily um, think Steve's out of line there, but uh, I was a little more positive on that story than than he was. Dave Schwartz, did you did you? I assume I'm hoping that you read the article. Yes, even though I'm curious if you it, thirteen pages or so. Which yeah, it's quite long. 
Um, I'm wondering if if you thought there were any insights in there that uh, that were new that were new to you. No, I really didn't pick them up on too much. You know, I think Adelson really is sort of this Las Vegas sphinx, kind of this figure that's a little bit enigmatic, and I, I don't know if anybody's really gotten a really dead-on portrait of him yet in print. You know, I think it's definitely a, he's definitely an interesting figure, and I like the idea of, of him writing his autobiography. Um, I'd like to read it. Yeah. I think that's good. I'm sure it'd be fascinating. Uh, you know, Jeff, you mentioned Steve Fries, who who did write a, a, a sort of follow up post to the New Yorker article, and he and he mentioned something in his blog post that I too didn't know, and um, you know, didn't maybe 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 feel a little bit sorry for for Adelson, uh, and and that's the situation with his elder children, I guess, who had had some some drug problems in their past and and there was actually a dispute about money uh at one point and that you know that's that sort of thing is just sort of sad and i guess it happens in a lot of those kind of situations when there's so much at stake but it you know that sort of thing is is just it's just too bad no one should have to deal with that well the the las vegas sun actually uh steve kaniger a longtime reporter a special projects reporter at the sun um, more than 10 years ago, before the Venetian opened, um, did a multi-part series on Adelson that included some of that family dispute stuff, um, and so it wasn't new to me. Um, and uh, so, I, and I was fully aware of that. I think that um, you know the 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 fact that I, I mean, and there, there's a couple ways to take it. I mean, you do have some, you know, you're, the sons who are feeling like they got shortchanged by their parent, and that can seem ungrateful. On the other hand, um, the fact that he had them, um, according to the article, according to what um, has been el- uh, reported elsewhere, um, he's making a deal with them to sell their interest in his Comdex-owning um, company and then um, sells the company for twice as much as it was previously valued the next day. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, and, and it is his first family, and he's and he has a new family. I mean, you know, it's a human story, and and I just don't know that much about that side of Adelson, so I really reserve judgment about that. I mean, I you know, I read it, I found it to be interesting. Um, it wasn't new to me. Um, I think Steve's one of Steve's biggest qualms was that the writer really left out the the Steve Wynn, Sheldon Adelson, um, you know, sort of you know, for those of us in Las Vegas. And and even for else even elsewhere, I think it seems like you know those are two larger than life characters, both of whom you know sort of look at the other as at least sometimes they've publicly indicated that they look upon the other as a sort of pretender to the rightful place that they themselves occupy. You know, Wynn sees himself as you know and has proven to be the best hotel designer. He feels that in the long run he'll prove himself to be the best you know, corporate manager. It's hard to argue with his real estate deals and with uh, a lot of his design philosophies. And I think, and I think he feels like, you know, Adelson has an ego that isn't matched by his creations. Um, and, and I think he's irritated also because Adelson is quite, you know, can be quite insulting um, to win. And then simultaneously, I think Adelson you know, says, hey, the scorecard, the scorecard is money. Um, look what I did when I created my business. Um, look at how much I'm worth. 
Um, it dwarfs the amount you're worth, um, you know, Steve Wynn. And, you know, Adelson feels like, you know, and, and, and so I, and, and I think he also has been much bolder when it comes to um, his decisions, whether in, in Macau and in China and elsewhere. Adelson really puts a lot of his chips on the table in play and is willing to bet more of his, you know, total company's assets on a lot of these moves. It's riskier, but with higher reward. And he's so far been rewarded. Um, and I think that, you know, Wynn has not been as aggressive um, in his uh, sort of betting on things like Macau. Adelson got his money, his straw in that drink earlier than Wynn did um, with a very rudimentary, big, huge, like Wynn calls it, his box of Baccarat. Um, and so, you know, I, I, did the story need to have that element? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's, you know, the most critical component. I mean, this is written in the New Yorker magazine. People in New York um, probably a little more interested in the, uh, in the Israeli component of, of Adelson. Um, but, I mean, for those of us in Las Vegas, leaving win out seems like a, a big, you know, misstep. But I'm not so sure for the New Yorker's audience that it, that it was. You know, we all find it interesting. But, you know, maybe, you know, I, I mean, you can't write everything. It's a big, big story. And I yeah. felt like, you know, she did a pretty good job. Well, I, I, I agree. You know, I think that the timing is, uh, given both the political situation in Israel and Adelson's role in in the election campaign, that uh, that the focus was was pretty much where it where it ought to be, particularly for a a non Vegas audience. Uh, the, I mean, Steve Steve Fries's review. I mean, it it lays out a kind of alternate narrative it's sort of it's like the outline for the story that you know that that uh, that he would like to have read or that the story that that he himself might have read and and i you know i mean you really couldn't do justice to the adelson saga in anything less than a book uh they you know they tried to cram an awful lot into what 12,000 words and so to some extent yes it's diffuse um the thing that that took uh, at the same time i agree with with what richard abowitz said that it's essential reading you know if you keep certain caveats in mind the one thing that struck me more than anything else was the unwillingness or the reluctance or the outright fear of people to speak on the record i mean there were too many second and third hand uh unsourced comments for for my comfort and uh except for for Terry Lanny who issues a very memorable put down of of Adelson not a lot of people who would speak for attribution well Jeff, as as Jeff you were talking a minute ago about some older stories in the sun that had covered some of this i did a little bit of the search and i'll post some links but just thought this was this headline was funny it's from a 1998 story Wind showers praise on controversial strip rival Adelson. <laughs> so things have changed a bit in the last 10 years. It's almost 10 years to the day, actually. <laughs> you know, this is a story I've never written, Hunter. I've never written this, uh, but it's something that Wynn told me on the record. It was, it's an amusing little story about um, when Bellagio had just opened and uh, um, Venetian had yet to open, but it was about to open. And Adel, um, the Adelson and... Uh, 
uh, I think Widener, but I'm not positive who the second. It was another top executive at Sands. We're overeating in olives um, in the uh, retail section of Bellagio, and uh, heard that Adelson and his uh, um, other executive were eating there. And Wynn sent, I think it was Mark Shore, down to say hello, and 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 uh, Shore sat down at their table and and uh, was talking with Adelson, and and Ad- and Adelson um, was describing the progress of the Venetian, and he said uh, he described. Um, the quality of Bellagio, and he held his hand at sort of chest level, and then he held his hand far above his head to describe the Venetian <laughs> quality, and and that was you know as a, as a guest in the in Bellagio to a Bellagio executive. So the guy you know does not lack for confidence and 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 belief in what he's doing, even if the rest of the world doesn't necessarily share that assessment. Um, you know, I think I think. It's fair to say that Adelson is a true believer in himself, and and you know I, I you know you, I, he may you know you may not agree with what he thinks, but I, I have to give him a certain grudging respect. He believe you know he likes he believes in himself and he follows through and backs it up. So I mean it it takes a little bit of chutzpah to to you know so boldly tell another guy yeah our casino is going to be way better than yours at a time when Bellagio is believed to be by far the best in the world. Um, but, you know, that's, uh, that, that's Adelson. Well, I could think of another word for it. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, uh, I have just one thing I'd like to tack on to the end of that is I'd love to see Sheldon and Gene Simmons do a project together. <laughs> they both have similar uh, confidence and uh, cockiness and self-absorption. So it could, it could be uh, fascinating. Oh, and and if anybody hasn't hasn't read Freese's review, it's worth clicking on to the USA Today piece that that he wrote and that he links in there because Adelson makes some some prophecies in it about Palazzo that have have not only not come true but have have it's been very much the reverse. I mean, he's bragging about how he will cannibalize everybody else. And then, of course, what Sheldon has probably discovered by this point um, is that he just wound up cannibalizing himself. Right. <laughs> yes, I think I think you're probably spot on there, Mr. McKee. Um, all right. Well, I think we're going to close it up for today. We're at uh, about an hour and change. Um, I want to say thank you to everyone for being here. Uh, and we'll go around the table, and you guys can say uh, where people that want some more info on you can find you. Uh, Chuck, how about you? VegasTripping.com. Excellent. David McKee, where can people check you down? LasVegasAdvisor.com. Great. Jeff Simpson. In business, in business, LasVegas.com. And Dave Schwartz. Still plugging away at dieiscast.com. And people can find me at ratevegas.com. Hope everyone has a fantastic weekend, and I'll talk to you guys soon.